Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rachel, Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent, and this is the latest in our special series of sex, sexualities, and sex work. And with me today, I have Katie Cruz, who is now going to identify herself to me. Can you tell us who you are, Katie, and your area of expertise? Yeah, I can. Um, So it's Katie Cruz. I'm a senior lecturer in law at the University of Bristol. And my research is on the relationship between the sex worker rights movement and their demand for rights and the kind of possibilities and limits of law for achieving the aims of the movement. Um, And I teach in the area of labour law and uh, law, gender and sexuality. So can you tell me how you got into this particular area? Yeah, so um, I, in my 20s, I uh, was, well, a couple of things, really. At university, I did a law degree, and I found a lot of it very boring until I got to the third year, and we did a module on feminist legal theory. And in that, we read a lot of different feminist theories of sex and sexuality. Um, And that was the first time during my degree that I was really interested in um, kind of a legal area. And at the time, I read a lot of Catherine McKinnon and the kind of radical feminist perspectives on sex work. And I disagreed with them, but I didn't really know why or like what the alternative was. At the same time, then just after university, I joined um, a a feminist group called Feminist Fight Back in London. Um, And they were, uh, well, they are an anti-capitalist feminist group um, that did a lot of campaigning. Um, but also joined up with the sex worker rights movement in London. And it was one of the only feminist groups at that time, I guess that would have been the mid 2000s, that was prepared to organise with the sex worker rights movement. And so it was kind of through my activism that I got more of an understanding of like what sex work was and what it's about and why I disagreed with radical feminism. So I started to put together all of those pieces. Um, and it just seemed that nobody was really writing at that time about the kinds of rights claims that sex workers were making and how they might or might not be achieved legally. So I thought like, um, so I carried on doing activism with feminists fight back, but also with an organization called Crosstalk, which is um, a group that was established in London in 2006. Um, to the, the, the main thing that we did was deliver um, English classes for migrant sex workers in different locations in London, like brothels and um, NHS clinics. I continued to do that work and I was getting more and more of an insight into like what the industry was like and the kind of or like legal vacuum really in which it exists at the same time I felt like there's this kind of emerging sex worker rights movement that um, wasn't getting the same attention that the kind of criminalization and the radical feminist perspective on sex work was so I thought at that time, well, maybe that's something that I can write about. Maybe I can do interviews with sex worker rights activists and try and scratch below the surface, you know, what, what's being, what's beyond the kind of rhetorics of rights. Like it's important, isn't it, to use that language of sex workers' rights are human rights, but what does that actually mean mm. um, for translating those, um, those, yeah, what does it mean strategically? Some of it is about raising consciousness and humanizing sex workers as workers. But then I was also interested in that next part about um, what can the law do and thinking quite creatively with the law, like in in England and Wales, um, prostitution is criminalised. So for me, you know, you can say, well, it should be decriminalised. And then the question becomes, well, what can law do to give rights to sex workers beyond decriminalisation? So that goes a bit further on in, in my thinking. But yeah, what got me started was a combination of like learning about feminism at university, doing feminist activism and um, trying to then bring that, um, you know, into relationship with my interest in law, really. Yeah. And it's, it's a really good opportunity as well to bring the conversation around sex work back to a conversation about workers' rights. Yeah. And, and to kind of recenter that conversation, because I've recently been reading is it, uh, Brooke Beloso who talks about uh, how dangerous it is when we consider sex work, but only through a kind of gender gender gaze or a a sexualities gaze, that we lose context of this is actually a site of work. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that if if we lose sight of it as a site of work, then we're only thinking about it in the context of kind of gender oppression 
or like uh, about like a kind of expression of sexuality on the part of like the client or the sex worker like what we're missing is a kind of class-based dimensions of sex work so there's you know it's a it's often a transaction like a you know tripartite transaction but there is often a boss or somebody who's um managing the work of the sex worker yeah uh, so it's not just the service that's being provided it's also a working relationship yeah and i think that we lose sight of the so that's what i've been trying to think about is like well what is it as work but i know like that's sociologically a lot of work has been done on that thinking about it's kind of embodied and emotional labor but i guess i'm more interested in the kind of marxist feminist questions um about what it is as work and then what the law can do to respond to it um, yeah in that way yeah yeah and that, that's really interesting from my point of view as well because my my research about webcam performers i did you know i wasn't really interested in the the, the dynamic between the um the performer and the customer or how she felt i was much more interested in the dynamic between herself and the the webcam hosting sites that that own the stream that she produces you know yeah. and that that tends to be overlooked and i think it's really interesting because we, as we're talking a second about stripping that that the less that we talk about the, the dynamics between the sex worker and the other social actors on the field outside of the customer, yeah. what we do is we, we create a real sort of tunnel vision that doesn't give us a broader picture of where potential exploitation really lies. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I think that that's a that's a problem, I think, with a lot of studies of sex work, both on the side of not the problem. I shouldn't say the problem. I guess that there is a lot of focus on the, the client in the sense of, um, you know, the radical feminist person, an exploiter or an abuser, or then the other perspective, which is, you know, it's just a cert, like a service user um, would be. And I, and I think that that neglects, um, like, but there are interesting legal questions there too. If it is just a service, then how do you enforce kind of like, um, uh, you know, uh, the kind of service contract between the parties, you know, can sex workers discriminate against who they sell their services to if it's like a provision of a service you know yeah and they discriminate on the basis of like race or age these sorts of questions like i don't really feel like those have been you know tackled in as much depth as um we could but then i think also yeah what gets neglected then is that third party and which is the often the person who manages the site or manages the brothel or manages the exchange in some way and I think from my perspective I would always see the intentions of that actor being to exploit the worker like structurally like yeah. there is an imperative that they, they have to exploit the worker in order for them to even want to do it I can't yeah. see intent that's the intention behind it um but it's quite funny you should say that because yeah, that exploitation of the worker is that an exploitation of a worker not an exploitation necessarily of a sex worker they would exploit you any way that they could yeah. you know and also as well i find really interesting we don't really talk about it this kind of elitist exploitation of sex working women is far older than we actually give it credit for i mean you know the whole of the roman empire seems to have been run on the the, the slave prostitution of, yeah. of women, uh, people in slavery and the, the benefits to the, the, you know, the elite slave owners. I mean, it goes back, you know, yeah. millennia, you know. Yeah. yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that that's what I've been interested to try and do is to think about sex work in the context of like different modes of production. So like, you know, you had this different modes of production historically and we're in a capitalist mode of production now. And like, so how does that work? And to like not think about sex work um, to start off from the basis that it's work, like we all have to sell our labour in exchange for a wage under capitalism. So that's a kind of like common denominator. And yeah. whenever we do that, we're exploited and alienated from our labour to varying degrees. So that's a kind of common starting point. Um, and to think of sex work in that context and to think about how that exploitation and alienation is gendered, like, um, and how it's racialized and all of these things. Um, so not to see sex workers starting from the perspective of it being different, but start from the perspective that it's exploitative and alienating work. But that doesn't mean that um, it should be criminalised because all work is is that. Yeah. And do you think do you think like sort of like this kind of expanded view that you've got came about as a consequence of your engagement with sex workers? Because what I've noticed is research that that 
either doesn't engage sex work or only engages sex workers on a like a really kind of superficial level it tends to fetishize the the sex sex the sex workers uh the sex working aspect of the sex workers lives yeah. so then we, we we sort of limit their lives to their interaction with the customers we don't look at the bigger picture i mean it's basically a call for participatory action yeah, activist research which basically what you've done yeah no definitely i think that like participation like within the sex worker rights movement and seeing how it actually functions and how it is just like a mundane job mm. was really helpful for me and also doing that kind of activism and like um kind of the kind of marxist feminist activism i did and i i i probably learned more like intellectually doing that than i did at university and like, that really helped me to see that um you know, a real uh, fundamental thing that we need to think about in society is how capitalism structures our lives. Yeah. And that's the kind of place that I think it's um, best to start from without being reductive about what class is. But we, you know, that's uh, the, the kind of antagonism around um, the exploitation of our labour. Um, that's what we all face. And like, it seems like a kind of common experience for all of us. Um, to kind of organize around so yeah it was definitely the activism and also and you know participation in efforts you know with with sex workers that helped me see yeah so um so the reason why i invited you today is because you've written a chapter in a in a book that, that's forthcoming can you tell us what the name of the chapter is yeah so is this the um the chandler one yeah <laughs> yeah, I can. It's um, actually forced. Sorry, I should have said it's forthcoming in um, uh, Studies in Political Economy, which is a journal in Canada. It's Dancers, uh, Win at Work, Unionization, and the Nowak and Chandler Bars Group Limited. Okay. Um, and it's an article that I've written with um, Camille Barbagello, who's a um, research fellow at Leeds University. So do you want to tell us about Novak versus Chandler? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's an interesting case because um, we can kind of understand it, I think, in the context of a lot of the kind of other gig economy cases at the moment, like the, the Uber case that went all the way to the Supreme Court recently. But there's this category in UK labour law that kind of sits between employment and self-employment. It's called worker status. Okay. And if you can show that you're a worker, then you're entitled to minimum protections at work, including things like holiday pay and minimum wages. Um, and so um, the, the article is based on an employment tribunal claim by Sonia that was made, um, that was heard actually last, last early last year. And in that she successfully argued- You've just gone quiet. Oh, Thanks. can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. So um, well, I don't know where I got to, but it, Sonia in the, she made a claim that she wasn't actually just self-employed by um, the club. So I think it's Browns in London in Shoreditch. She said, you know, I'm, I'm not just merely self-employed. I can't come and go as I want. You're not just providing me with a space to dance. Actually, you're controlling my labour. I can't substitute my labour. There's a rotor. All of these things which allowed her to, um, you know, successfully claim worker status, which means that they have to pay dancers in that club holiday pay. They have to pay minimum wages. Um, they can't They can't dismiss workers on discriminatory grounds. They, the, the dancers have protections against whistleblowing. So there's a bunch of things that worker status allow you to have. It's not. It's not quite the same as employee status. Like so, you don't have protection against unfair dismissal. But it's basically this category. I think one way it's useful of thinking about it is being a dependent entrepreneur. So you're self-employed, but you're dependent on a particular company through your work okay so that's what she was able to argue that she was um in some ways self-employed but she was dependent on browns for her income which yeah now means that that those obligations so her work doesn't change it's the club that has to abide by its statutory obligations now to pay her things like minimum wages okay. which yeah so what prompted the case i mean why 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 well, did you yeah, it's interesting because I think part of the reason is that the um, the union, the United Voices of the World Union, have been organising um, strippers. So there's been like a kind of two things. I think it's organisers around the women's strike and decrim now have been thinking, and, and that's why Camille was involved in, in the article, because she's been doing a lot of this organising. So decrim now, the campaign, 
talks about decriminalization of sex work, but they're attaching that to, cl to claims around labor rights. And they decided to start trying to organize strippers because they're already a decriminalized group of workers. Therefore, they can start making kind of labor rights claims. So it's a combination of decrim now and the United Voices of the World Union coming together and kind of, you know, raising consciousness in the clubs in London saying like, you know, you are entitled to these protections and trying to get people to join and take, you know, and take those claims. But I don't think it's been uncontroversial within the clubs, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> yeah. Like I think the clubs themselves and a lot of dancers are, um, well, obviously the clubs are anxious about this because they like the way things are run now because they have no, there's no economic risk that falls at their door. Like, you know, if the dancers don't earn anything that night, they don't have to pay them anything. Whereas if they have if they have to comply with the statutory obligations and they have to pay them at least the minimum wage when they go home. Mm. So these are the so obviously the clubs don't want any of these um, obligations to fall on them. And then a lot of dancers think that their their work is gonna get worse if they're not self-employed. So there's this kind of false idea about and I mean this is a classic kind of tactic that companies use like Deliveroo and Uber. They've all been um, guilty of kind of um, putting out this idea that if you if you go to an employment tribunal and get your rights, your work is going to get worse. <laughs> in that we're going to be able to control you more and tell you what to do, and you'll only they they've told dancers that you'll only earn a minimum wage, which isn't true. That's just like the floor that they can't go below. Yeah. And on top of that, um, so um, it's been quite controversial, but I think that's what started it really was the Decrim Now campaign in combination with these interesting kind of grassroots um, unions that are emerging, like the United Voices of the World Union. What's the other one? The IWGB International Workers of Great Britain, I think. Okay. And they're, they're quite interesting in that they're organising a lot of migrant workers and, you know, service workers. Um, so they've taken a kind of an interest in, in organizing strippers too. Yeah, I mean, I was quite interested in just like how aggressively anti-union people like Deliveroo are, and, and I think Amazon as well. Oh yeah, yeah. No, they they they're guilty of like um, even giving incentives to workers to work outside of the area where meetings are being held, um, in order to not participate in meetings. Um, I mean, they're doing a number of things because obviously if they if they have to comply with their statutory obligation, if they're found to be workers or employees, then that means that there's a cost now to the company um, that they don't want to like. So it, it, to me, it shows really the um, the profit motives that companies have like the, that, that's where their interest lies to make as much money as possible from you as a worker to see you as kind of a cost to them rather than a human that you need to provide for. Yeah, I was wondering as well, because obviously I'm very familiar with Browns, like very familiar with Browns, <laughs> just going to put it out there. Yeah, <laughs> It's been there for a very long time. Yeah. And I'm also very aware that actually a lot of income is generated by, by strip clubs, not only Browns, yeah, but strip clubs around the fining and the punitive uh, actions mm -hmm. towards uh, workers so for example if you're late or you're talking on your mobile phone or whatever yeah. you can be fined does that yeah. does that recognition of, uh, of the, ch the change of status affect the ability for say a club to make money out of you know indirect money out of the workers are they still well, able to impose yeah. fines and but whether or not they're employees workers or self-employed all of those fines should be clearly outlined in the contract and if they're not outlined in the contract they shouldn't be like, so it doesn't like whether or not that this case has no bearing on the fines, those fines should um, be clearly outlined. If they're not, then there's a breach of contract that's happened, whether it's a self-employment contract or a worker contract. Mm. But I think I think what worker status does do, so, so say those fines are outlined clearly in the contract, then the worker has to, and they've signed the contract, then they have to comply with those. And you can fine employees, that's all, all fine. But um, what it does do is mean that um the, the the amount that the dancers are paid can't fall below the, the minimum wage okay. so yeah so i think do i cover the fines question in 
Um, yeah, so there is, the, you're right, there's a, 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 there's a kind of combination of things that the clubs do. They, um, there's often a system of fines for disobedience and the house fees that we all know about. Um, and yeah, the, 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 the fact that there are fines and high levels of control in place points to the, the, um, them being something other than self-employed. You yeah. don't really tend to fine um, people who are self-employed for not coming to work on time. Yeah. So like that, that, that level of control points to them being something other than. Um, yeah. So if you want to find, basically, if you want to find me, then I'm not self, um, it's likely that I'm not self-employed. Therefore, you have to give me my worker protections, which include holiday pay, which include minimum wages. You can't, you can't sack me for whistleblowing about the industry, these sorts of things. Yeah, so this is because like stripping is like a really interesting case study, isn't it? In this in this desire to to reach like smooth capital, like so smooth capital is quite this interesting like sort of concept that Deleuze and Qatari come up with, and I think Negri and Hart as well discuss it, and they discuss it beyond legislation is where you need to be in order to make smooth capital, smooth capital, i.e. capital with no workers' rights, no wages, you know, just limited overheads. And so, you know, sort of like when the, the downturn of the economy happened and the strippers, strip clubs weren't so so popular anymore because people have got so much money to spend. So then the onus, yeah. the responsibility of, of generating income shifts from the club to the, the customer, from the club to the, to the yeah. performer. Yeah, no, that may, that's an, I don't really know about that. Well, I don't know about that concept, but like that, that makes sense to me. And so the trying to exist outside of the kind of legal obligations that you would have as an employer, um, because that's, that, that's the best way for you to manage the kind of economic risk that comes with owning a business, especially when times are tough. Um, you know, like you, you want like what it's called like flexibility, isn't it? Like that the employer wants a very flexible workforce. Yeah. To be able to say that you're just we're just we're just providing you with the space to earn money and you just pay us a free. We're not doing anything beyond that. We're not telling you what to do or but then when you look closely, actually, you know, the dancers are being told what to do. It's not and I mean, you know, if you're self-employed, you can send somebody else to work for you. Can you imagine if a stripper sent their brother to work for them? Like it's just not, it's not, not acceptable, is it? <laughs> but it's, it's really interesting as well because it it kind of like brings into uh, debate the questions of, of the limitations of smooth labour, of smooth yeah. capital in a physical space because the good thing about places like Browns and Spearmint Rhino is they're tethered to a location. Yeah. So they can, you know, you can you can bring criminal actions against them. You can bring legal actions against yeah. them. But that's not the case with the online stuff. Yeah. You know, that there's, you know, because there's a real sort of like, um, uh, sort of like a parallel here with, well, it's almost like an improvement on the strip clubs by webcam yeah. webcam hosting sites because, you know, they, they, they totally abuse any type of workers' rights to the extent that I've interviewed women who have, um, you know, sort of like transgressed one of the rules of the site. And so their, their account has been closed down, including all the money that they've earned that week. So they've lost thousands of pounds and there's no recourse. So not only are they not no longer got an income, the income that they've generated is lost. Yeah, it would be interesting to see the kinds of contracts that the um the, the that are in place. You know what the dance, what the performers are signing up to. Because I mean, you don't need to have like workers' rights to have like a contract. And if the contract's breached and they're just not paying them, like surely there's an exchange of services for um the exchange of their performance. Like yeah, what's the nature of the exchange between the webcam performer and the hosting site? It's they savage. give them the site and then they... it's savage yeah basically the performance ends away all right including the copyright of the stream yeah so they can use the stream for anything they want they can use the stream to to, to broadcast like people's images across the internet you know they basically sign away their rights it's a very one-sided contract but it's almost like capitalism has learned its lesson yeah. from you know sort of like forms of like sexual labor like stripping and it's perfected it yeah. online you know it's not yeah. the online yeah. environment doesn't just benefit the um the performer 
or the or the worker, it, it benefits the third party hugely with no real kind of like feminist engagement either. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I wonder what it says in the contract about like the non-pet. So the the hosting site, I'm assuming, you know, the money goes through them and then comes how how does the money move? So basically this this is it. A it all goes to the banking system. Yeah. yeah. But basically the money goes like from the from the customer to the to the uh sort of like here pays the the uh the hosting site then the hosting site then takes generally between 50 to 65 percent of the earnings yeah. and gives gives um the performer between 35 and 50 percent so it's, it's quite it's quite similar how it's organized lap dancing clubs in a way um not all not all lap dancing clubs but some of them work like that i don't know that the the customer pays the club the club then deducts the money and then they give it the, the money or it's a voucher system or something like that but I would be so surprised if in the contract it doesn't say that for each of the transactions that the site has to pay has to give the worker at least what like 30 or 40 percent and if they're just withholding that money and not complying with the contract like it's not even like a worker's rights issue it's just a contractual breach but the contract is written in such that if you trans if you if you contravene the the uh, conditions of the of the site which are huge yeah and yeah. are subject to alteration at any point you've you've con- you've breached your contract and you've got you know and also as well you you know who do you then take that to because these are very ephemeral sort of entities yeah, no, it's, it's really difficult to think about how you would do it i think it's really important that it happens though um, and in terms of, you know, like, they can't just withhold that. It wouldn't be unpaid wages like, or something like this, but we would be able to claim some sort of kind of contractual damages or something or some sort of restitution or something from the site. And that seems like a really important area that people should be thinking about, even if they are um, categorised as self-employed. Self-employed workers still have contractual rights. Yeah. And it does seem like, it, you know, it's a, it would be really important work, I think, for you know, it would be great if a union got involved with the web. But where, but where would you where would you direct exactly, that action? That's, that's, that's the other thing, isn't it? It's really difficult to think about how that because it all takes part in the kind of private household. Maybe maybe more like a kind of another comparison would be you know sex workers who work on their own from home. But I think I think the point yeah. is is it's not where the sex worker is; it's where the 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 hosting site is based. Yeah. So that that's that and that is the beauty, isn't it? This is the perfection of like web coming over, say stripping, is that yeah. once you're untethered from a geographical position, yeah. which you know, so which legal area, you know, which legal kind of um dominion do you fall under? Yeah, no, I mean it would definitely I think it's really interesting because I, I would like to think about this more because I'm re, you know, my focus is always on the relationship between the worker and, and the boss. And I guess the boss here is the host insight. Yeah. So I think it's really important to try and understand more like what's being signed. And you know, also you can't vary a contract without the agreement of the other party. So if they're just changing the terms of the contract and the workers aren't agreeing to that, well, how are they getting them to agree to that? Like it would be interesting to know, um, yeah. But it's quite interesting as well, uh, the lack of sort of like, say, sort of uh, governance feminism, radical feminism with, say, webcamming, because I know sort of like, sort of uh, governance feminists very interested in the world of stripping, very interested in the world of sex work generally, totally not interested in webcamming. Yeah, it's it's interesting that they're, they're not, um interested in it and when they are it's perceived as a problem that you can tackle through demand um rather than and you know and, and not an issue that you because they don't see it as that's always a problem for me because radical feminists and a lot of feminists don't see it as work you never get to the point of thinking about it as a kind of employment relation yeah and until you get to that point and, and think about it in that in that way which is you know it's really um even do, like with and then even when you get there, it's like not traditional kind of labour law questions because it's not like an easy thing to look at because a lot of it's online. A lot of it's this kind of tripartite relationship where you've got a customer, a worker and a boss. So it, it's, it's really complicated when you situate within work. But yeah, a lot of feminists never even get to that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So about the Novak uh, versus Chandler Bar case, uh, case. Yeah. what happened? What happened? What happened to Sonia? 
what happened to her? Yeah. So, I'm just trying to remember the facts of the case now. Um. So yeah, she's. I, I'm not sure how long she had been working there. Um. And I guess I could go over a little bit about the facts of the case. You, you're going to be editing this, aren't you? <laughs> no, we just play it. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, I'm trying to find the part. Um, yeah, I guess what happened to her is that she she joined the union and started to talk to them about what was happening within the club. Um, and that and she also I think she's part of the decrim now campaign um and it, you know just through the conversations with her and other people in the club people started to think about how you know well we're told we're self-employed but we we have all of these sort of obligations on us about um when we have to turn up for work how we book holiday that I think there was a sense in the club which I'm sure happens across lots of the different um strip clubs that there's high levels of control um which doesn't make sense if we're supposed to be self-employed surely we should be more autonomous about how we conduct ourselves at work so what what was the actual the the actual kind of like result of the court case how did the court case pan out so in the in the court like it's just an employment tribunal case and it so that means it could be appealed now by browns um so they might be unhappy with what the employment tribunal have said. And if they are unhappy, which I'm guessing that they are, and they've got the funds to do it, um, they will appeal this then to the employment appeal tribunal. Um, but the, so the kinds of, um, so the, the sorts of questions that the court were, were asking was, well, um, you know, Browns say that the, the dancers are just merely self-employed is that the case or is there something more going on here beneath the surface that's not you know that browns aren't fessing up to and if there are like these sorts of um extra requirements you know if there's a high level of control if um if the workers are being required to personally perform the services so is there a requirement of personal service between the club and the dancers well yes so they want the specific dancers to go to work uh, and they they have to comply with um, all of these sorts of fines and levels of control and is there kind of an exclusive relationship between the club and the dancers well yes they're told really that they can't dance anywhere they're not allowed to or they're encouraged not to so all of these things then become indicators of there being something else going on that's not self-employment yeah. The court concluded on the basis of those facts that Browns were wrong, they aren't just self-employed, that in fact what they are, they fall within this category of worker, um, which means then that they are entitled to their statutory rights as workers. So what that then means for in practice is that the dancers at Browns should get worker protections now. Okay and browns so their working environment doesn't change for them at all because the, the court said well you're already workers in the eyes of labor law it's browns that needs to change now and browns need to start complying with their statutory obligations okay and then covid happened and then covid happened <laughs> <laughs> so, and all the closed. yeah i mean which is really unfortunate because it would have been really interesting to see what the consequences of this action were in the the, the lived experiences of the dancers I know. I mean, really interesting, isn't it? The only thing that we could has really happened, um, which we wrote about in the paper, is that there's been a movement of dancers online. So a lot of the dancers involved in the, um, the United Voices of the World Union have started on this online um, kind of worker cooperative called Cybertees. Okay. Um, and that's kind of run by the workers for the workers, which is interesting. I, I'm not sure what the connection necessarily is between um, the, the um, court case and what's emerged, but like you could impose on that a view that, you know, the dancers have had their, you know, they've realised that they're being exploited by the clubs and now they're starting this new thing online, which is, you know, run collectively. Okay, so has there been any sort of like movement on the part of like say the local council or the government to make sure that the, the clubs like, you know, sort of change their, their um, sort of modus operandi? 
Well, we were hoping, I think that um, when the Policing and Crime Act 2009 came into force, that gave greater powers to local authorities to regulate what are now called sexual entertainment venues. Um, and there are, there are provisions within that legislation which would allow the clubs, um, the local authorities, to improve working conditions in the clubs. But that hasn't really been the way in which the provisions have been used. How they've been used more by local authorities is the new provisions around um, what, what's kind of colloquially called the nil policy, which allows the local authorities to say that we deem that this locality should have so many strip clubs or no strip clubs and and that's really what's been used and campaigned around by and this is happening in bristol at the moment actually um the local authorities um power consultation as to what people in bristol think about the existence of the lap dancing clubs here yeah um, and and this is really what's been happening is that um it's been a combination really of local authorities radical feminists people who are kind of gentrifying in inner city areas who are arguing for the closure of lap dancing clubs. Okay. Um, so yeah, local authorities really, and I mean, one of the things that I guess I was hopeful that the local authorities could act as a kind of, in the absence of employment protections, I was hoping that the local authorities would be receptive to dancers going to them and saying, look, these things are an issue in the club. Can you improve the conditions? Yeah, can you, can you, uh, because what they could do, the, the local authorities could say, well, Browns, if you don't start having the heating at a certain level, we're going to revoke your licence. Okay. But dancers, it seems um, from Camille's work and um, what we wrote in the paper, that the view on the ground amongst dancers is that they don't want to go to the local authority because they're worried that any complaints against their bosses will be construed as a reason for the club to close rather than for it to improve. Okay, and so, it's, it's, so is this the first case of its kind? Yeah, well, no, I shouldn't say it's not the first case. That, it's the first case on worker status. Okay. But it's, not, it's not the first case of a dancer contesting their employment status. That was the um, oh, the dancer at Stringfellows a few years ago, Quashy. Yeah. The Quashy case, yeah. So she argued that she was an employee, which is a slightly different claim. So she was arguing that she was unfairly dismissed. And to be unfairly dismissed, you have to show that you're an employee. So she was making that claim. And she that, that was really interesting because the employment tribunal said that she was an employee. The appeal tribunal, no, the, the first, it went through three layers. The first court said that she wasn't. The second court said she was. And then the court of appeal said she wasn't. Mm. Um, so it's not the first case, but it's the first successful case. And it's quite it's quite interesting, isn't it, the way that we have this really sort of narrow focus on victimisation of sex workers, like really, really narrowly sort of conf uh, confined to that kind of discussion between customer and sex worker. Yeah, but there's this kind of real silence around uh, sort of like more systemic kind of victimisation in some circumstances. Yeah. So in the case of the strippers, this victimisation is like ignored. But your other work, the work that you've done in Jamaica, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the work that we did in Jamaica is with um, two sociologists. Um, we wanted to look at the way, um, we're in Jamaica, the way in which the kind of modern day slavery narratives and the child sexual exploitation narratives that have kind of been imposed on Jamaica are kind of playing out on, on the ground and in the lives of, of those affected. So um, one group that we were uh, did research with um, was sex workers. We, so we we're interested in what sex workers had to say about um, what trafficking and what slavery is, like how useful they found that framework in their organising activities. And, and what they think about this narrative of Jamaica being this kind of hotspot of child sexual exploitation and what sex workers themselves think needs, needs to be done to improve the, life, improve the lives of sex workers and children, you know, more generally in Jamaica. Um, yeah, and I mean, in the industry in, in Jamaica, um, I think, you know, what we found was, you know, systemic kind of gender based discrimination against, you know, women and, and trans workers coming from all sections of society, really. Um, 
and that that but you know like it that it doesn't seem it didn't seem to us that there was a huge amount of evidence for the sorts of things going on that are said to happen in Jamaica it's just more kind of mundane day-to-day discrimination uh, exploitation that's going on um so the the sex worker Alliance of Jamaica is the organization that we're working with there, which is the Sex Worker Rights um, Collective. Uh, and yeah, they're arguing similarly around the kind of issues that we had many conversations and um, trafficking just wasn't a framework or modern slavery that meant anything to them. You know, what they were concerned with was rights and decriminalization. So, you know, it's another section of the sex worker rights movement who, who are making the same sorts of arguments. Yeah. Um, because it's really funny isn't it it's like you know because it's so impossible to have a discussion about any type of sex work nowadays without a discussion about trafficking or exploitation and it's really interesting how actual exploitation is overlooked yeah Mm. if there's not a political uh sort of like uh benefit to to certain sort of like sort of social actors and i'm thinking in particular of sort of like you know sort of carceral feminism and sort of governance feminism Mm. and how that those those sort of narratives are are hijacked really yeah no definitely like yeah i mean it just in in jamaica um like even like the and like the notion like it was kind of even the notion of being a feminist wasn't so much present there and yeah I mean it just seems like all of the funding that's coming to Jamaica or the ways in which it's being categorized through the tip reports and things neglect really the, the kind of everyday issues that people are facing in Jamaica and, and it just doesn't seem to me that the kind of modern day slavery the trafficking framework really captures any of what's going on there there's not like um you know the idea that people are being trafficked on into jamaica or out of jamaica i just found no evidence yeah. that just doesn't seem to be like what is being spoken about and the, I, the idea that there's like modern day slavery you know people just talked about living in jamaica it's like um economic slavery like it's not ended like it's just you know and what you have to look at when you look at jamaica is why is it so dependent on tourism like, you know, how did it end up being in this position and how do people try and like live, um, you know, and uh, yeah, live in a country that's so dependent on tourism where there's so little opportunities and employment for people. No wonder people, it's a kind of, well, it's obviously a different context, but it's a similar narrative. Like, why do people do sex work? Because it pays better than the alternatives that are available. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean that feeds that feeds into the sort of like the narratives that you get from people like Laura Augustine and stuff like that. You know, that the idea that you know that for a lot of people, sex work is the best of a limited amount of options. Might not be your only option, but it's probably your best one. You know, all things considered. You know, which kind of like makes me like sort of brings me to this question that that I'm struggling with at the moment, which Mm. is around the role that feminism plays in debates around sex work. Yeah. And whether, you know, sort of like, you know, what do you see the role that feminism plays in debates about uh, around sex work? And how do you see, you know, you know, what needs to change, basically? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, there's, in in my view, the kind of debates around um, sex work, how they're playing out in feminism at the moment. I mean, I do think that there is a kind of strong... I, I do think the kind of radical feminist perspective is still quite dominant, you know, so the view that women in the sex industry are victims of sexual exploitation and so therefore if you're a victim of sexual exploitation, what you do is you criminalise the actor who exploits. Yeah, like That seems to be like the most dominant narrative and I think that's what, you know, and there is a kind of way in which then that feminism works with the state to, around things like enhanced criminal um, you know, so criminal justice responses. So I think that that's useful thinking about that in terms of carceral feminism, like you were saying, or, or governance feminism. And then I think that the, but I've always found the kind of perspective that's juxtaposed to that as the kind of, um, I don't know, liberal feminist perspective that it, it's work um, and about improving the conditions of people in, in the sector and they can be a choice, etc. Kind of quite limited like yeah. I, I think it's an important perspective but I don't think it's one that um 
understands a lot of the structural issues involved in, in sex work. But I think that you can think structurally without being a radical feminist would be my kind of provocation. I think that's what feminists need to start doing more is to think about like the interests involved of, of particularly bosses and managers, like um, why, they, why they exploit sex workers, what's to gain there and for feminists to be engaged in those sorts of questions yeah they're like not seen as the kind of more sexy questions around sexual exploitation versus sexual agency like it's not like I think that's where a lot of feminism happens yeah yeah I think I want to take a more kind of industrial relations approach um I think feminists have an important voice there um in thinking about you know how work is organized in gendered ways and you know, why is it that the work that women are supposed to do for free in the home when it's commodified is seen as less valuable than kind of the sorts of work that men do in the, in the workforce or kind of masculine forms of work? So those are the sorts of questions. And then thinking, well, about the limitations of, of waged labour as a vision of like what, are, what we can do as humans. Yeah. You know, those big questions about, you know, why do we work so long for so little? It's quite interesting because, like, um, uh, I, I I did a podcast a few a few days ago with Laura Bracewell, who's just written a book called uh, "How We Lost the Sex Wars," and her claim is is that actually the sex wars turned into a cat fight a binary cat fight between radical feminism and liberal feminism. And what gets left in that cat fight is the, um, is the, the narrative of black and third world feminists yeah. who are basically saying, actually, this, this, both of these sort of like uh, sort of binaries are problematic. And yeah. we, we need to be thinking outside of this, this kind of binary. And yeah. I actually, you know, I'm starting to think, and as someone who identifies as a feminist, I'm actually... Do we actually need to step aside as feminists when it comes to looking at sex work? Because the relationship between feminism and sex work is so intertwined that it kind of like almost suffocates. So it's hard to actually look at it as being anything other than, 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 than you know, a legal battle. Yeah. You know? no, and I, I think that those, the, those feminist perspectives map nicely onto different like, legal strategies, whereas I think that I think what I would like to do is to say like it's, it's important to be a feminist, but I think that the sort of feminism that I want to think about sex work through the lens of is it is a kind of Marxist feminism that always thinks about the position of, of, of laborers and workers, whether it's formal or informal workers, wherever you're located. But, and I do think that starting from that perspective yeah. is more useful and, and it, it, more inclusive and more intersectional then starting from many of the, the, the kind of more polarised positions of, of liberal and radical feminism. So I think feminism has a lot to offer, but it's, um, it's harder. It's, and I always notice this with teaching too. Students will really latch on to the liberal versus um, radical feminist position on sex work because it's quite, in some ways, it's very neat, isn't it? And it's yeah. very, um, and you can get your head around it. Whereas I think if you if you think about it in the sense of um, the position of workers and labourers and how we reproduce ourselves in society and how we live and how we get the, the necessities we need to survive and how that's all commodified, all of these sorts of questions, then it's much more tricky. It's it's a much bigger picture and it's, it doesn't really centre sex and sex work anymore. It's just about living and survival. Yeah, but I think as well that with the I think as feminists, like you know, I'm very interested in the field of social harms, and I think feminism has done a lot of poor women, you know, sort of like a lot of social harms because of the narratives that produce these legislations, you know, but. Even the the narratives that are just that, that tend to look at um, sex work through these frames of of uh, sort of sexuality or sort of gender studies, they can be as harmful because actually what they do is they distract their conversation away from sex work yeah. as a form of work and with with all the inherent potentials or like positions of exploitation that that has. And I think as feminists, I think we need to really look at not just uh, what we're saying. But the possible impacts of what we're saying. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think that, you know, that's, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like feminism is a really bored church, and it seems like a lot of the dominant voices are those ones that, that do harm. And I think it's important 
and I, I'm to, to look at those harms. Um, but I do think that the, the kind of other worry I have is the kind of narrative around governance feminism. It presents feminism as less complicated, like less nuanced than I think it is. Yeah. So I think like when Janet Halley and people are writing from the US about the dominance of Catherine McKinnon and how um, she's taken over globally. Well, that's true. But a lot of those people in the governance feminist tradition now want to kind of take a break from feminism. And I don't really think that you need to do that because I don't think feminism can be reduced to, um, you know, radical feminism or indeed liberal feminism. And I think, again, that's the kind of perspective that comes from the states, but they don't really talk about class or Marxism. No. So to me, they're being a bit blind in their conception of feminism. Yeah, I was quite interested the other day because obviously, you know, like I don't have like a particularly fond attachment to radical feminists. But, you know, when I was going back over the Porn Wars, <clears throat> one of the, I think the only sort of like feminists outside of the third world, uh, like sort of feminists, like black feminists that were talking about, you know, the impact of pornography on, on black men was actually Andrea Dawkins. You know, and I think we do the discussion a lot of damage because we don't, we, you know, we get blinded by these arguments. But it's almost like because sort of like early feminism has has its basis in 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 discussions about prostitution and then pornography, we're almost blinded. Like I'm, I'm starting to think that actually we need a sorbet moment here yeah. where we actually stand back, let some other people examine sex work for a while and then come back yeah. having had a, a bit of a refresher. You know? Yeah. No, I think that's interesting. And I, I feel quite heartened by like the, the, the students. I, I definitely know it's a change over time. And I think it's like as kind of economic and social conditions have got you know, worse than like, like students now at university, all they've known is kind of crisis. Like they're much more receptive, I think, to ways of thinking about class and um, intersectionality yeah. than students were in previous times. So I wonder if some of it's a kind of generational shift yeah. too. But I think it's really important to, um, yeah, definitely decenter yeah. radical feminist debates, but not not too much buy into the critique coming from the kind of Janet Harley school of thought, because I, I do think they're again writing from a US context as if they're talking about feminism globally. And it's like, well, not that doesn't, that's not all feminism. Yeah. And I think, I think then you kind of like get into this debate about the limitations of feminist standpoint theory. Yeah. yeah. That, that definitely needs a revisit because, you know, when I, when I was researching my, my, my thesis and I, you know, you know, a feminist standpoint is not the same as a sex worker's standpoint. Yeah. By virtue of your, like, your adherence to feminism does not give you an insight into sex work. You, know, yeah. you might have an opinion about it, but yeah. you, haven't, you haven't necessarily got an insight. And, it, you know, I find that really interesting as well. I find yeah. that kind of like, that there's an assumption, you know, like there's an assumption around the narrative around sex work that the feminism has, an entitlement to sex work, yeah. you know? You wouldn't use a feminist sort of standpoint for any other type of work, I don't think. I don't think you'd have a feminist standpoint about plumbing. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I think, yeah, it's it's, like, it's always difficult, isn't it, to think about um, a feminist standpoint being based on experience alone. Mm. Um, but I, I think the way that I've, you know, been thinking about the kind of feminist standpoint theory is it's kind of more of a kind of, it's not an individual standpoint, it's something that you really reach collectively that's always going to be antagonistic and open to being contested. Yeah. And as long as you are okay with that, yeah. then um, that's about the best you can do. Like you can't, like it's, I, I think that like I would define as a Marxist feminist, but I don't think that um, radical feminism or liberal feminism is necessarily wrong. I just think that it's um, limited. Yeah. Yeah, and so I take I take parts of it like, that I find useful, but I wouldn't reduce. Um, I think it's like Drusilla Cornell said about Catherine McKinnon that she tells a truth but only a partial truth. Yeah, and I've always found that as a useful way of thinking. Of course, like sex work, you know, is um, gendered in in the sense, and you know there are sexist assumptions that uh, you know circulate and that um, you know structure the exchange we you know like that's all that's definitely true yeah so what you know we've, we've, we've touched on a couple of like pieces of work that you've done what else are you involved in um so at the moment um 
Well, I mean, I, I think this is interesting because I'm interested in gender and work. What I'm looking at at the moment like, is uh, I've got this UKRI grant that's looking at the impact of COVID on early years childcare. Okay. So like, that's something, uh, another project that I'm working on, which I kind of see is kind of similar to my interest in sex work in that, you know, I'm again looking at um, work through a gender perspective and thinking about the labour law implications and social welfare protections. Um, and then the other thing that I'm doing is trying to write the book, which is uh, based on my PhD, which is um, called Sex Worker Rights Activism in the UK Within and Against the Law, which is, yeah, as I said, based on my PhD and it's split into two parts. So the first part is about how rights can be used to decriminalise sex work. And then the second part is thinking beyond decriminalisation. And it's kind of imaginary in the sense that that's not where we are. Mm. But thinking about um, how labour rights and social welfare protections and things like a basic income could apply to sex workers. Um, that's the second part of the book. And um, yeah, so that's the other project I'm working on. Okay, that's quite that's quite interesting and quite optimistic because I sort of like the way that I see. I don't know if you agree with this, but the way that I see the debates around sex work, there are some forms of sex work that are entirely lost now because you can never reverse that that, that discourse around victimization. So you know there is never going to be a return to sort of like street sex work because you know the the debate around victimization has become so pervasive. Yeah. But it's almost like there's other types of sex work that are, are largely ignored. Yeah. And so they they sort of like achieve a sort of economic mainstreaming that we haven't seen since like, you know, the Middle Ages. Yeah. yeah. So okay, I'm really interested in that idea that in the sort of like the 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 kind of um uh that the idea of like some forms of labor being uh what's that word so precarious that yeah. in between those times that like, sex work would be a go-to and i'm thinking about you know the, the water trade yeah. in britain and in, in in medieval times and you know the the, the origin of the word spinster is that interchangeable yeah. with the word like sort of prostitute yeah. and i think that's uh, me personally i wonder if that's the best that we can hope for is that we just get you know that people just get left alone to do what it is that they want to do you know whether yeah. it's quite optimistic to expect a basic wage uh, a point where there seems to be no labour rights for anyone. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, definitely. And I think that the second part of the book is, um, you know, I try not to make it too idealistic um, in the sense that, um, you know, these things might seem a bit pie in the sky. But I, I would say that, um, you know, gig, gig workers are contesting their employment status and there is, or, Although it's difficult to imagine labour law applying to all precarious workers, I guess that's the nature I would think of like kind of class struggle. Like that's what you always is never is never one once and for for capitalists because they depend on us. Yeah, so they need us really, and so we're always going to fight for better conditions. So, um, like to eliminate us would mean that the end of like that would that's a communist manifesto thing is that they'd hang themselves by their own rope, like. So they've got, they, they're going to try and give us as little as possible, but we're always going to argue for more. And I, I mean, I was really hopeful that we would have a Labour government and, um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and people were in favour of kind of decriminalisation and thinking through things like a basic wage, which I think would really have a huge amount of workers, whether they're employees or self-employed. Um, but yeah, some part of what I'm interested in at the end of the book is thinking about sex work as an interesting case study for um, thinking about, you know, the value that we attach to work and why, yeah, why why we work so much and like what um, is, I, I guess this would be another book, but, you know, thinking of what, what would sex work look like if we didn't live in a capitalist society? Because we'd still work, like, but we yeah. wouldn't work in the way that we do now. So what might that look like um, yeah. and starting to think about some of the sorts of laws that you'd want in place to protect people who exchange sexual services. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that came through in my research is that one of the reasons people particularly liked re uh, sex, sex work and I was like interviewing people that are webcammed was because they could get earn a really good wage in a relatively short time. Yeah, I mean, and that totally makes sense isn't it it's like um why wouldn't people do it if you're a if, if you can cope with the kind of stigma and all of those things that come with it yeah then it makes complete sense um 
And I do think, you know, that um, I don't think it's worse work, but society thinks it's worse work. So, you know, and so sex workers have to deal with that kind of stigma, which I think can, must be very difficult in, in their lives. But if people can negotiate that and it's the best option available to them, that doesn't mean I think it's okay, but I understand the choice and I think it's very rational. Yeah. So um, let's let's kind of like give you this opportunity for, for a, a shameless plug of who you are and the title of the book that your chapter fe- features in. All right. So um, what shameless I So me, Dr. Katie Cruz. And um, yeah, what I would encourage people to do is to look out for um, this coming forthcoming book which is going to be published I think by Routledge called Sex Worker Rights Activism and the Politics of Rights Within and Against the Law and it should be published um, next year and it will be the first book that kind of documents the history of the sex worker rights um, movement in the UK and thinks through the possibilities and limits of law for achieving rights for sex workers. Uh, Excellent, excellent. And my name is Rachel and I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent. <laughs>